Hello and welcome to Contemplative Episcopalian, a podcast of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. I am Father T.J. Humphrey, and for this podcast, I'm going to be sharing with you uh, the homily that was preached for September 9th, 2019. In my opinion, uh, it was a homily reflecting on one of the more complicated passages of all of the Gospels. Um, But the name of this homily is called Detachment, and it's a reflection on spiritual detachment. Thank you for tuning in. It was one of the most important interviews for my ordination process. And the group of us were sitting around a round table, and all of these people in collars were staring back at me. Frightening, (laughs) I know. I realized that one of the priests had made a comment to me, but that it had gone in one ear and out the other, because I was somewhere else entirely in my mind. But I snapped out of it and realized that they were talking about the autobiography that I had to submit to them. The priest repeated her remark. You've been through a lot in your life, haven't you? You've seen some rough stuff and been through some rough times. And my response did not even come close to capturing how I was feeling in the moment. Well, yes, I suppose I have, is what I said. But, thank you, Jesus, for liberating me, is what I was thinking and feeling in the moment. I was overcome with joy. I realized right then and there, in that very moment, that all of the wounds that I had collected throughout the course of my life had healed over, and that all of the trauma that I had been holding on into my body had been released. As the priests recounted parts of my story to me and reflected on it and asked me questions about it, I felt like they were recounting somebody else's story because that narrative no longer defined me, no longer caused me so much mental anguish as it had before, no longer hovered over my life like a dark cloud. I realized that day I was free and that that day something was different. God had granted me the inner healing that I had been praying for, for a lifetime. Jesus' words to us this morning are perhaps the most challenging of all of his teachings to listen to, to tolerate, and to make any sense of whatsoever, and for good reason. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. Well, (laughs) Jesus certainly didn't win any popularity contests with this one, did he? Perhaps there might have been an angsty teenager or two in the crowd that day. I can see this who may have resonated with Jesus' harsh teaching. Amen, Jesus. I so hate my dad today. I can't even. He took away my video games and made me mow the lawn. So not cool. He is such a dork. I could see that reaction. But everybody else would have been just as shocked as we are by Jesus' divisive rhetoric. Now, it is important for us all to acknowledge that some of us will be slightly less offended by these words than the others, interestingly enough. 
While some of us may not like how Jesus has worded things here, and more on that in a bit, for those of us who have suffered at the hands of unloving family members and people who are supposed to be close to us, but who have hurt us, this confusing passage poses itself as an invitation to freedom. As much as Jesus upholds family life seemingly everywhere else in his teachings, we see from this particular passage that family life is not the end-all be-all with him, that family trauma does not have to define who we are, and that we can let it all go and be free. We sense a strange freedom from this passage, as harsh as it may sound. But nevertheless, it is still important for all of us to grapple with the passage. Jesus' whole message has been so much about love. What are we to do with this sudden hate talk? Like our text from a few weeks ago, when Jesus said that he has not come to bring peace but a sword, this passage deserves to be chewed upon. It's not enough for us to say, Finally, Jesus gives me permission to hate my miserable family. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> that will not do. Nor will it do to simply dismiss the passage outright as if Jesus never said such a thing, simply because it offends our modern, sophisticated, you know, sensibilities. The truth is, is that Jesus' message has a profound purpose, and it is intentionally designed to poke at and to even irritate something deep within each of us. Now, to be sure and to be clear, Jesus is not delivering an addition to the Ten Commandments here at all, or like an ethical imperative, an ethical command. In other words, and to be extremely clear, Jesus does not, does not want you to hate your family your life, or even your possessions, either in thought or in deed. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is not calling you to hate. He is using hyperbolic, exaggerated language. And in doing so, he is grabbing us by the scruff. He is shaking us and he's telling us to wake up. He is disrupting our narrow religious and ethical patterns of thought. And he's trying to shake us awake with this teaching. And this is perhaps the first point that, we can, that can be made about this text. It's based on wisdom literature and a wisdom tradition. We know this because Jesus has given us a pretty consistent message so far, but now he's throwing us a tremendous curveball. And he's presenting a paradox to us, a contradiction, which is what wisdom teachers do. In Buddhism, for example, there's a similar tradition around koan teachings, or kon teachings as some people pronounce it. A koan is a paradoxical statement that is meant to be grappled with and meditated upon. The goal is that the one hearing the koan will abandon their dependence on their own narrow logic, and that the teaching will force them into gaining a sudden burst of enlightenment, or a sudden epiphany, if you will. The koan is designed to get people out of their heads and into their intuitions. It's designed to help you to come to the awareness that life is not about thinking about life, but life is about living your life right now, in the moment, and in every moment. The koan is meant to startle you into the great spiritual aha moment in your life, where the great light bulb finally goes off. And there's a similar approach in much of the wisdom literature of the Bible as well. 
take Ecclesiastes, for example. If you were to take that whole book, literally, without considering the rhetorical devices that are being used all throughout the work, it's only going to depress you, like, big time. (laughs) I mean, the book starts off with the line, meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless. Yeah, and that pretty much sums up the whole book. (laughs) Uh, The the, the book is kind of shocking when you sit down to read it. The teacher's words are startling all throughout the work. For example, some teachings. Do you enjoy your life? Well, that's too bad. You're going to suffer soon enough, for sure. Meaningless. Have you, through hard work and the sweat of your brow, acquired some wealth in your life? Well, that's too bad because your kids are going to spend every last dime of your hard-earned money on idiotic things after you die. (laughs) Meaningless. Have you acquired much wisdom throughout the course of your life? Well, that's too bad. The more wisdom you have, the more you know, and with the more you know, the more sorrowful you become because you learn things about people that you wish you had never learned to begin with. (laughs) Meaningless. Have you been happy all of your life? Well, gee, that's too bad. Your fate will be the same as the sad person's. (laughs) Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. Now, does the author of this work truly believe that everything in this existence is meaningless? Is he just whining about the way that the world is? I mean, if that's the case, it's a funny thing to put into the Bible, isn't it? Or, or... Is the author of Ecclesiastes trying to evoke a response in you, the reader, by using a dark and albeit humorous tactic? He's not trying to highlight how the world works as much as he is trying to highlight how you see the world, or more importantly, how you do not see it. In the same way, Jesus is invoking the wisdom tradition in his words to us this morning, which is why it all sounds so tremendously inconsistent and jarring. We all have ways in which we seek to confine and limit our notions of the divine presence, whether we attribute our salvation exclusively to our wealth, our health, our family, our possessions, or our jobs. The wisdom tradition punches right through these notions, so that our minds can expand, so that we will quit trying to put a container on God's presence and God's blessing in life. And this is precisely what Jesus is up to in his little message to us this morning. Perhaps the problem with us when we hear Jesus' words today is not so much in what we hear as much as it is in what we do not hear. We hear these words and just interpret them as Jesus commanding us primarily to emote hateful feelings towards our family members and our lives. We don't tend to hear Jesus' radical call of detachment, Jesus' radical call beckoning us to quit looking for our salvation in all of the wrong places. Now part of the issue, no doubt, is that the translation of this passage is not as nuanced as it should be. Some would argue with me, but I'm convinced of this. In some instances of the Bible, the word that is translated as hate would be much better off translated as detach, because it's not talking about an emotion felt, but about the idea of separating oneself from a crowd. An example of this 
Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now did God really angrily and intensely, emotionally hate Esau? Or was it simply another way of God saying, Esau and I have parted ways. We've taken different paths. Esau is going in a different direction. If God hated Esau with an emotional hate, it's awfully weird that God also chose to provide for Esau so much. So just one example. And this notion of hate being better translated as detach, I think it's very true of our gospel reading today. So just listen to this and see if this jives more. Whoever comes to me and does not detach from father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. None of you can become my disciple if you do not detach yourself from all of your possessions. Now this passage makes a bit more sense, doesn't it? Jesus is calling us here to the spiritual work of detachment. But what does this mean exactly? Let's try to paint a picture. While it is a good thing to have families, and while it is a necessary thing to have possessions to survive, you know, we will never find wholeness in life if we make life exclusively about these things or these people. For example, if you're married, your spouse may be absolutely incredible, but they do not want to be your god. If they do want to be your God, your marriage is really in big trouble. I hate to tell you that. But if you make your spouse into your God, you're, feel, you're failing to see them for who they are, and you're failing to love them for who they truly are. Your spouse may be absolutely terrific, but they're not perfect. You must detach yourself from a false view of them and accept them for who they are, not for who you want them to be. And additionally, we must make our faith our own. We must take responsibility for our own lives and for our own spiritual well-being. If I'm coming to church just because I grew up in the church, and that is the only reason why I am here, I fail to realize that God has so much more in store for me. If I'm coming to church just because I now have kids, and I want them to experience some ethical and spiritual teachings, and that is the only reason why I am here. I am still missing out on the so much more of what God has in store for me. If I'm coming to church just because my spouse dragged me out of bed and into this place, uh, I'm still missing out on what God has in store for my life. There comes a point in life when we all must detach ourselves from the faith of others and claim the faith for our own. If your parents are wonderful Christian people, that's awesome, and I'm happy for you. But you still must walk down your own path. You can't just walk their paths all of your life. And the opposite is just as true. If your parents are terrible Christian people, judgmental and emotionally abusive, you still must discover your own spiritual path and walk down it. If you just react and reject spirituality and religion and Christianity just because you've seen it lived out poorly by others, you still have not learned to detach yourself from them. And perhaps you're not any better off than they are, because you are still walking in accordance with their spirituality, or lack thereof, and not your own.
one final reflection this morning. We seek to do the work of spiritual detachment in order to better reattach. Detachment is not the final aim of the Christian life. Detachment is a pivotal part of our journey, though, if we're ever going to fully love. You have to be your own person in order to love. Others cannot choose to love for you. And perhaps with this in mind, this can serve as a good definition for detachment for us. When you detach, you become your own person before God, so that you can love from the center of who you are, and not love from what others expect you to be. So, we don't seek detachment in order to love less, but in order to love more. Currently, I have a, I am married, I have a wife, and I have a three-year-old son, and we have a daughter who is on the way. Uh, I, I can be so obsessed with my notion of family and the threeness that exists that I fail to make room for any new family members. There's a, a point where I have to detach from the way family life is now in order to make space for the way family life is going to be for me. So we, I don't detach in order to love less, but in order to love more. The goal is not to leave our loved ones behind, and this is not what Jesus is getting at in the text, but the goal is to invite more loved ones to the table, to make more elbow room and more space for them. Jesus' message is not about rejecting our families, but it's about expanding them. Detachment is all about taking the harnesses off of our love. And we all start out with a very narrow lens of love, where we limit our love and our trust to just a select group of a few people, and this is predominantly manifested in family life for most of us, if not all of us. And this is precisely why Jesus is making the point that he is, and so radically. We're not called to love just a few people, but we're called to love all people. After detachment has done its work, and after we have let the Holy Spirit in to expand our hearts, we can't help but see and adore the presence of God in everybody. God's love for people does not discriminate, nor should our love. God's love for people is not contained to, fam contained to family lines, nor should our love. Jesus took up the cross and laid down his life for all people, not just a few. Now we are invited to do the same. Will you harness your love? Will you harness your love? Or will you let it loose? This is Father T.J. Humphrey. Thank you for listening today. For today's time of guided meditation, I invite you to rest in God's resting in you. I invite you to accept God's acceptance of you. Reflect upon the fact that you are God's temple, that you 
or God's abode. That you are God's home. That the Holy Spirit chooses to reside within your body. And to work infinitely through your finiteness. I invite you to find a quiet place to rest in. Find a place to rest your body, to relax. Sit down, lie down, kneel, stand. Makes no difference. Find a place where you can breathe and where you can be alone with your thoughts and where you can be still before the Lord. Focus on your breath in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Let your breath be your mantra. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. As you continue to breathe, reflect upon the words of the collect for this season. Grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts. For as you always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Continue with the breath work in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. out. Wrestle these words deeply into your heart. Grant us, O Lord to trust in you with all our hearts. Grant us, O Lord, to trust in you with all our hearts. Trust in you with all our hearts. With all our hearts. With all our hearts. Heart. 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 As you allow God's presence and the silence to wash over you, 
reflect upon the things in this life that you are thankful for. What are you most thankful for? Who are you most thankful for? What are you most thankful to God for in your life? What are you most thankful about yourself for? With these offerings of praises and thanksgiving, let them serve as a backdrop in your mind as we recite another mantra together. Say it after me. Thanks be to God. 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 Don't forget to breathe. Thanks be to God. Breathe in. Breathe out. Thanks be to God. Breathe in. Breathe out. Thanks be to God. Thanks. 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 As we conclude, we conclude with a reflection. And no matter where we're at in life and what's happening, we always can find opportunities for thankfulness, no matter how grim. At the very least, if we feel unloved, we always know that God loves us. When we feel alone, we always know that we're not alone because God is with us, and not just with us, but within us. And whenever we feel poor, we know that God has made us rich in God's kingdom. And whenever we feel as though we failed in life, God uses our strengths, our weaknesses, and our failures to grow us, to strengthen us, and to form us into the people that we are becoming. But most of all, we can always be thankful that God has chosen us 
and our bodies and who we are to be his temple, to be God's abode and dwelling place. So we're thankful. I invite you to reflect and to continually reflect on things that you're thankful for and ways in which you're thankful for God's abiding presence within you throughout the course of this week. And if you find that you tend to be down or life is tough and you are just sad or uh, somewhat depressed, I find that reflecting on all the things I'm thankful for um, helps pull me out of that. Um, as well as doing meditation helps to pull me out of that. So I invite you to continue with the important work of focusing on your breath as mantra, the, f- the important work of um, praying through the scriptures and colics of the church. I invite you to do the important work of reflecting on all of the things you're thankful for. I invite you to do the important work of naming out loud why you're thankful for God's presence in your life this week. Thank you for praying with me today.